This episode is hosted by Jordimon Companies. Check out the show notes to follow him on Twitter. Hi Ian, welcome to the Software Engineering Daily. Thank you so much for having me. We're here, KubeCon Europe 2023 in Amsterdam. Record-breaking event officially. Uh, the biggest um, open source event in Europe, apparently. Ten, more than 10,000 people in person. More than 5,000 online connected to the stream. And a wait list, unfortunately, of several thousand. Not, not that many, but over 2,000. Apparently, that will get corrected or amended in the next edition in Paris, if I'm not wrong, which uh, with a bigger venue. How are you doing? Are you having fun so far? This is your what, Yukon? Across the world, EU, America. I'm trying to count. One, two, three, four, maybe fifth or sixth, but I'm not actually sure. Um, my first KubeCon was Barcelona in 2019 um, and have been, I think, going to almost every KubeCon since. I missed KubeCon Detroit um, because of uh, personal reasons, but um, every other one I've made it to. What breaks you? What, yeah, what brought you in the first place to the first KubeCon slash Cloud Native, I should say? uh that you attended what was it and is the same reason that brought you to the first one the one that uh, makes you stick around well you know i had to go to kubecon before i actually managed to make it to one um i was when i started going to kubecon doing penetration testing consulting and the thing about pen test consulting in at least the united states not sure about the whole world is that everybody wants their penetration tests done in q4 um, because everybody's compliance checkboxes need to be checked by the end of the year. And KubeCon North America is always in Q4. And so um, I was not able to make it to the KubeCon until I got a job that was not contest consulting because I was just always triple booked in Q4. Before that, um, I by the time I got around to going to KubeCon, I was very excited about Kubernetes, like had friends in the community, was excited about hacking it and becoming more involved. Um, so... That's a lot of what brought me there. I also had a talk um, for my first KubeCon in Barcelona about a CVE that was big news at the time, um, breaking down how vulnerability worked and how the mitigation happened. And so this time around, I'm still excited about Kubernetes, still excited about the community, still excited to see my friends, and also have a talk this time around. Um, this talk I'm doing with my hacker crew called SigHonk. There are four of us. And our talk is about vulnerability scanners for containers and SBOMs and um, what they do and what they don't do. We will talk about that later. By the time this um, uh, interview will be aired or distributed, uh, I'm fairly sure that the recording of that uh, talk, talk will be available on, on the CNCF's YouTube channel where they get uploaded. So I'll link it in the show notes for everyone to enjoy. Uh, so do you also remember the first time you came across Kubernetes as as a professional pen tester, whatever you were doing? Um, at the time, I was um, an IT team of one when I first encountered Kubernetes. And uh, since I was doing the job, realistically, of 10 people, I was very interested in building out automation, so basically to keep myself from drowning. I learned a lot in that job. I'm not sure I recommend doing that. I did not get a lot of sleep, but I did learn a lot. And... Um, I was looking into better ways to automate things. Kubernetes was still pretty new at that point. So I looked into it in my capacity there. Um, that job uh, eliminated my position at some point. And then I went and got a job at a place 
that were very early Kubernetes adopters and were using it in production. Back when Kubernetes in production was something that most people didn't do. And I got onto that team, um, so DevOps team, and they said, we hear you're interested in security. At the time, I was playing capture the flag games competitively on the weekends and, you know, was just generally interested in that. Can you explain briefly what that is? Sure, no problem. Um, capture the flag in this context is not the game that many of us played on the playground as children. Um, it is a game that hackers use to sharpen their skills. There are a few different kinds of capture the flag. There's kind of player versus player attack defense. And there's kind of Jeopardy style where you have different categories where you get more or less points um, based on level of difficulty. Um, CTFs, which is what they're often shortened to, um, don't have flags that are physical. A lot of the time they will have like a text file that will be in a server somewhere and you have to compromise the server as root to be able to go find it. You demonstrated by having a copy of the of that file, for example. Yeah, it'll have a hash in it. You enter the hash, and then then it knows that you got the flag. Um, so I was playing CTFs competitively at that point, and was generally interested in this kind of thing. And this team that I joined were like, "Hey, we need a security expert on the team," and we're using this, you know, at the time very very new technology called Kubernetes. And um, we'd like to see if you can break it. Is that a thing you can do? And I said, "Challenge accepted. I'll try it." And as it turns out, I could break it. And so. Kubernetes was still pretty new. I got to kind of grow up with it as an attacker, as a pen tester. And, you know, as it got more sophisticated and its security mitigations got more sophisticated, our attack past had to become more sophisticated too. So that's been a really fun challenge to try to keep up with it. Um, at this point, I co-chair SIG Security for the Kubernetes project. So uh, that changes um, the flavor of it a little bit as an attacker because when I attack things, it becomes my own problem, <laughs> but it's fun to do. And um, you generate your own pipeline of uh, work, future work, right? In a way. But, you know, it like it keeps it fun. I, I keep myself on my toes and um, I don't know, I really like it. And it's it's been a really it's been really exciting to get to follow the project and grow up with it as it's grown up, too. Before we focus on your main contributions as the uh, in the SIG that you mentioned, let's drill down a bit because I think that people take for granted. Everyone thinks everyone realizes that the difference between containers and uh, virtual machines is that these are lightweight or the, the former are lightweight compared to the latter uh, are ephemeral. You can destroy them and treat, treat them, you know, uh, spun, spin them up in groups very with little compute uh, uh, power required compared to a, a virtual machine and so forth. But I think that people do tend to think that both of them have the same levels of isolation, right? So could you walk us through the differences that there might be uh, between, in terms of isolation between a virtual machine and a container? Sure. This, the answer to this question is more complicated than it used to be. Um, it used to be that virtual machines would have kind of more robust sandboxing because virtual machines are kind of a kind of operating system onto themselves, right? Um, virtual machines will have their own kernel often. This is, I'm going to complicate this in a minute. And, um, and containers, on the other hand, for a very long time were, um, if you think about this as being the difference between a house and apartment building, I think is my favorite analogy. A VM is like a house. It has its own plumbing, its own wiring, it's standalone, everything is contained within it. A container is more like an apartment building. Every individual apartment will be its own individual container, but the wiring, the plumbing, the electricity, and everything is shared throughout the entire building. 
So isolation for containers traditionally has been more like that. They don't have their own kernel. They share resources with each other and also with their hosts. This historically has been very security problematic for containers because if you compromise a container, for example, running as root, you then have the equivalent of root on the host. But a quick question. Don't virtual machines share a hypervisor? They, well... And wouldn't, if, if that's true, wouldn't compromising the hypervisor make, make that, uh, that vector of threat the same as compromising the kernel for a group of containers that could have it shared? I don't know that it would be the same exactly. Um, generally speaking, that kind of hypervisor compromise is harder than it has been historically to compromise containers. It's less commonly done. Um, so generally speaking, virtual machines have this extra kind of layers of isolation, whereas containers historically have it. Now I see that, and now I'm going to complicate it, which is that in more recent times, um, there have been a lot of advances in container isolation. There are what's called microkernels, there, um, which make the um, structure of these containers much more like traditional VMs than traditional containers. Um, there are different kinds of isolation mechanisms and mitigations such as user namespacing that make it so that um, if you go and compromise a container as root, then you're not necessarily, if there's user namespace remapping, in enabled, you're not going to be able to go get into the host in the same way that you could traditionally. Um, this makes it much harder for me as an attacker, but is great for defenders and makes it more secure for users. Okay. So those are the basic differences like from a high perspective between, in terms of isolation between a virtual machine and the containers, right? Um, yeah. The basic principles of isolation historically have been that they have a lot more sandboxing, they have a lot more isolation on their own, whereas all of those resources have been shared with containers, each other, and their hosts. Like I said, there's been more mitigations recently where that's, they're kind of becoming closer together in some ways, but that is probably more technical arcana than you want covered in the time that we have today. Okay, so we've assumed that containers are less isolated despite the improvements of the last years than a virtual machine. So we take for granted at least that some of the images or the lasers within the images that we pulled in might have vulnerabilities. So for that, we have to be careful with, or we have to actually put in place some um, uh, image scanning, right? So I think you've actually, your talk tomorrow is about that partially, correct? So what what is it that you're going to talk about? Give us a, a bit of a, this is going to be, the recording of this is going to be uh, distributed le uh, later. So uh, you, could, you could do some spoiler here. Okay. Container image scanners um, are very popular. People generally like to do it to make sure that they're Finding the CVEs, um, which is, I think, common vulnerability exposure. CVE numbers are assigned to vulnerabilities often when they come out. So these scanners will um, go through, find vulnerabilities in various places, in operating system packages, in dependency files, in binary metadata, various places like that, and will surface those findings and put you out a report about how many findings that you've got. Um, this is important because if we know how many vulnerabilities are in our containers, then we can get an idea of how we might need to go about fixing them. How many of them are critical? How many of them are, you know, just informational? Um, how this might affect our systems? That's kind of one part of your balanced security breakfast, so to speak, about, you know, like it's one tool in the toolbox that can be used to make sure that you are shipping images that are secure as possible to make and with as few vulnerabilities 
as possible, or at least that you know what vulnerabilities are in there so that you know how to find and fix them. What our talk is about is um, we have taken many of the widely used container scanners and we have shown that you can bypass those findings. If you apply certain kinds of mitigations to your container images in the build process, you can make it so that those images have the same amount of CVEs as they ever did, but the scanners themselves won't show any findings at all. So anyone that compromises the build system of those images and wants to, for some reason, hide a vulnerability would be able to introduce such uh, such such thing that the container that the image scanners would not detect vulnerabilities. Is that what you're saying? You've actually gotten slightly ahead of me already. So, well, I'll get there. So, um, so basically uh, applying a series of techniques, and we have a series of demonstrations applying this series of techniques. If you know how the container scanners function, like what it is exactly that they look for, you can then introduce bypasses in the image build process to bypass the wall. So if you know where they look for, for example, operating system packages, one thing that you can do is change the version or the like or the different files that give them information about what OS it's using. Um, and then it won't be able to find those there anymore. If you change, for example, um, there are a few different techniques because there are a few different places they look. They look at operating system detection. They look at package um, kind of listings. They look at metadata embedded in binaries. And they look at um, dependencies that are listed in files like gemfile.lock, package.json, requirement.txt, that kind of thing. One by one, we go through all of these and then we take out all of the things that they're looking for such that this image will still be full of CVEs, but they don't see them anymore. Um, eventually, as you correctly kind of predicted, um, you were like, well, can you sneak anything in there and have it not find it? And the answer is yes. As it turns out, you can also sneak in malicious act like stuff into your images and S-bombs won't detect it either, um, especially if you apply certain techniques to bypass the S-bomb generation process. So you can have your images be full of all kinds of malicious stuff, and they won't show. The talk is called Malicious Compliance, and the persona that we are talking in um, in this talk is not necessarily attackers who are trying to do nefarious things, it's overwhelmed software engineering teams who are being completely inundated from finding some of these scanners and are like, how do we even deal with all of these problems? We need to ship. We have a deadline, right? So that's the persona that we're doing. Like, how can we be maliciously compliant? And then we apply these malicious techniques to achieve compliance by having it serve as no findings at all. Wow. Well, that's scary. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, I can see it how it's appealing to the overwhelmed developer that just doesn't know what to do with uh, a full report of vulnerabilities that is just produced every time the build is finished and so forth. It's hard, right? I mean, we have a lot of empathy for the sort of overwhelmed developers in this position because when you have so many findings, you have to triage them, you have to prioritize them, you have to fix them and apply mitigations and like patching software itself is not easy. Right, security people are always telling everybody to patch, but 
you know, you patch something, it breaks something a couple of dependency layers deep, and then, you know, you miss your release deadline and all kinds of things happen. And so we know that some of the things that security people ask of development teams are a lot, you know, and we want to kind of send some love to development teams to be like, hey, we see you, you know, we know that this is a lot to ask. We know that this is a lot to deal with. Um, we're not suggesting that development teams take this route to solve this problem. Um, but, um, but yeah, and the other goal of this talk is to show people what these tools, container scanners, SBOMs, actually do, how they do it, and also what they don't do, so that when people understand that better, they will be able to better place them into their larger security strategy. Because these tools are useful for some things. We're not saying they're all terrible. Um, but those tools don't do everything and they don't do what they do perfectly. So, um, you know, if people understand what they do and what they don't do and are able to make educated security decisions, that can help the secure the the software engineering community become more secure as a whole. Yeah, I agree. So go back again to the um please to the positions in the community that you hold and what influences the work that you've done uh, in the SIG, uh, yeah, how that has, has influenced the security audit, the most recent security audit that the Kubernetes team has implemented uh, uh, lately. Sure. Um, so I am the co-chair of SIG security for the Kubernetes project. And SIG security um, actually came out of what was years ago, the working group for third-party security audits. Eventually, that working group realized, um, I can say we, I was in it. Eventually, we realized that there was more to do in security with Kubernetes. Historically, um, Kubernetes did not have a dedicated security SIG. It had SIG auth, which um, was responsible for like authentication authorization mechanisms in the API server. But people who would show up who were just interested in doing security weren't necessarily going to have a kind of place to go. It does, it does, doesn't it? And so um, eventually we realized that, and I think that this was originally a well-meaning decision, right? The idea was that security is everybody's responsibility, which I would argue is true. Um, but there was so much interest in Kubernetes security and, and there wasn't really a spot for people who wanted to do that. So we made one. Um, and uh, I've been co-chair of SIG security since its inception. Um, we bring people together who are interested in Kubernetes security to work together, share ideas, and um, and collaborate with other SIGs to improve the security content of the product project itself, its internal tooling, its documentation. We have several subgroups. Um, one of them is SIG Security Docs, which helps improve Kubernetes documentation as a whole and works with SIG Docs for that. One of them is SIG Security Tooling, which works with internal tooling for the Kubernetes project, basically for devs. So it has, for example, uh, updating CVE feed. It has, um, we've worked with SIG release and other SIGs to um, improve um, image signing, like that kind of thing. And uh, another one of our working groups is security self-assessment, which um, projects within Kubernetes like cluster API, which is kind of like tooling that lives under the banner of the Kubernetes project we have um, given them means inspired by the similar um, efforts by tag security from the cloud native competing foundation um, we have a self-assessment process so that 
we give them the tools to be able to assess their security themselves without having a third-party audit um, done to them. Um, our other working group, um, which is, again, our history, is the working group for third-party security audits. So oh, that hasn't gone away. It's under us. Um, it is the, uh, so that is the, the work, the third-party security audit is now a sub-project of SIG security. Um, so this is, um, this is our baby. We're really excited about it. We've been working on the um, third-party security audit, getting it together, working with the Security Response Committee and with NCC, who were the people who did the testing, um, to get it out for months. And it just got it just got released this week, and we're so excited to have it out. Um, this is the first security audit of Kubernetes in a long time. Um, for various reasons, uh, there had not been one in a couple of years. So we're so excited to have an updated one and um, and to have it be out there so that people know what the issues are and know what kinds of fixes and decisions they need to make. What kind of issues are the main ones? Would you be able to elaborate on that? A little bit, right. So the idea behind having embargoes around CVEs is that it gives people who are making the software time to mitigate the vulnerability before it gets released. If you've ever heard of anybody talking about dropping a zero day, a zero-day vulnerability is one that's unpatched. That's generally um, not something that a lot of people prefer to do um, because they want to give people the chance to have it be fixed before everybody else gets to hear about it. Um, with a big report like this, um, different findings were the responsibility of different SIGs. And so it took kind of different parts of the large machine that is Kubernetes to different amounts of time to try to deal with those findings. Um, and and it was successful. It took a long time and a lot of back and forth, but it's gone very well. I would love to encourage everybody to read the Kubernetes um, audit report to find out. Where can they find They can find it um, linked from the CNCF website. Um, there was just a keynote at KubeCon, I believe yesterday, where there was QR code on the slides that people could scan to find it, but I believe it is hosted on the CNCF website. It will also be hosted within the Kubernetes GitHub repos so people can come find it in there. What are the human elements of the of securing the software, software supply chain that most interests you? Are there, are there anything in particular, any attitudes, any processes that you are fond of or? Um, so I think a lot of the time when we talk about supply chain security, we talk about tools, right? We talk about we talk about container scanners, we talk about image signing and attestation, you know, like there's there's plenty to talk about with that. But one element that often gets ignored when talking about supply chain security is the human element. Because software, if we're being real, is made of people, right? Like Soylent Green, but not quite. Um, and because people are the ones who make the software, people are the ones who use the software, people are the ones who attack the software, right? We don't talk as much about the human element relation to the software supply chain. And I think that's a mistake because if we look at how iPhone, how, if we look at how high profile hacks often happen or even low pro profile hacks, a lot of the time they'll start with, for example, a phishing email, right? They'll start with somebody being convinced to do something by any number of means, or, you know, maybe in supply chain attacks, there's a really burned out, miserable maintainer who doesn't want to maintain their project anymore. And they put out a call, please, we would love some new maintainers. I don't want to deal with this anymore. 
some attacker will be like, great, I'll happily maintain that for you and we'll stick something malicious in there. And the people who are the end users, who are also human and who matter, won't necessarily be the wiser for that. They come to trust, you know, trusted vendors, trusted developers. They're not necessarily going to be keeping a very close eye out on who is supplying their stuff or what's in it. And a lot of the time that cascades down. And I think if we think about the software supply chain as not only being a matter of tools, but also being a matter of humans. And if we start thinking about how we can help people, um, then I think we can start talking about that as a problem set a little differently. And we can start talking about those solutions a little differently. What would it look like to support open source maintainers so that they don't have the kind of burnout that leads people to just drop their projects or hand them to attackers? Um, you know, how can we support people to continue to maintain things when vulnerabilities are found? How can we make sure that people who are doing security research are, if they do the right thing and report the vulnerabilities that they find, are legally protected and aren't going to get in trouble? Um, how do we make sure that the people who are responsible for security of these open source projects, for example, are also protected from legal liability because that in and of itself can carry issues. Um, if we think about creating a more secure software supply chain and creating a more secure world as not only implementing these tools, which to be real are important, but also supporting the people involving in, involved in the making of software and the breaking of software, as well as users, if we think about what that might look like, our past might look different and I think would be more robust overall. In my interview with Mikko Hippanen uh, months ago, which I'll link in the show notes, and I, I actually would suggest that you, anyone listening to this, listen to that episode or that interview, because I don't remember this specific um, project, but if I'm not wrong and it's in his book, definitely the vulnerability introduced in either OpenSSL or Log4J, I believe it's OpenSSL, was introduced by an open source maintainer on the 31st of December of a specific year at 10 p.m. So just imagine, you know, that person committing code very, you know, with the best intention. Obviously, it's the last day of the year and I'm fairly sure his family is waiting for him or her in the table. I don't know who he was uh, or who she was. And um, and yeah, and, 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 and yet he, this person introduced the vulnerability because obviously he was, she, she was thinking of, of something else. It was, a, it was the last day of the year. So all I'm trying to say is that uh, this person was not paid for this, most likely. And, um, and yeah, that we need to understand the context in, uh, and the pressure that many open source maintainers uh, feel and, uh, and support them like you just mentioned. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And it's important too, in light of the increasing use and often increasing kind of uh, strong recommendations from, for example, governments to use these kinds of tools that we've been talking about in the software supply chain. What does that look like for your average open source maintainer? What does that look like for your average end user? What does that look like for your average developer? Because a lot of the time the answer is it looks like a lot, right? Realistically speaking, like, you know, any given developer already is full up on sprint points and does not have an extra 30% of their of their sprint cycle to dedicate to um, fixing all of these things as they get found. 
right? And, you know, as sort of that stick up becomes more of a thing, which I generally think is good, a lot of the time we are expecting more security expertise from people who historically we wouldn't necessarily have expected it from. For users, you know, like they have a lot going on in their lives. They're not necessarily always going to be up on the newest security stuff. Um, it's hard enough to convince them to update half the time. You know, like what does it look like to make things easier for people in these processes? We have not entirely figured that out yet, but I would argue personally that like some of the sort of top-down mandates that happen, um, if they happen without understanding the kinds of problem sets or the kinds of pain points that users, developers, maintainers might have, um, if, if those are done without talking to them or listening to them, um, it makes it harder for them to adopt them. And it makes it more likely that ultimately that's going to be less likely to work as well as we want it to. Because if the goal is for us to make a more secure software supply chain and a more software, a more secure world together, then, um, you know, everybody needs to be involved and everybody needs to be heard and listened to. Because if we don't understand what people are facing and we're just like, we'll do it anyway, a lot of the time people just aren't necessarily going to, right? And like, if we figure that humans are human and that humans have always been and will always be human, how can we work with those kinds of human impulses? How can we work with where people actually are? If we understand where they are, we can meet them where they are and we can figure out how to accomplish these things together. Well, with that note full of hope, I'm happy to close this interview there. And unless you tell me we didn't touch upon anything that you actually wanted to double click on. I wanted to shout out um, the subgroup leads for Kubernetes security. Um, the folks who have been working really hard on the recent released third-party security audit, um, the people from Six Security Docs who have been working really hard to um, improve the security content of Kubernetes documentation and give end users helpful advice about how they can do things better. And people from SIG Security Tooling who um, have made it so that the Kubernetes project itself in our own build and release processes can make things in a more secure way so that that can benefit end users downstream. And also the folks from our newest subgroup security self-assessments because they have been allowing the projects under the Kubernetes banner to be able to empower themselves and each other to make more secure projects themselves. Um, I'm really proud of the work that the subgroup leads and the folks from SIG Security have been doing. Um, it's a really great group and I'm really proud to be a part of it. If anybody here is listening um, who is like, wow, I want to learn more about Kubernetes security and I want to get more involved, um, we have meetings every other week. There is a Slack channel on Kubernetes Slack, which is not the same as the Cloud Native Computing Foundation Slack. Um, called SIG Security, SIG-Security. And everybody's welcome to our meetings, regardless of skill level. We really provide um, an inclusive, welcoming environment for everybody from the newest contributors to the most experienced old heads. We really pride ourselves on that. So if you're interested in learning more, getting involved, come to a meeting, come hang out, talk to us on the Slack channel. We're around. Thank you so much for having me. Great, before you leave, so what's next for you? Apart from tomorrow's talk, which again, well, I'll link with the Kubernetes Slack uh, channel or the, the Slack community in the show notes. What's next for you? What's next for me personally is um, currently I am looking for a new role. If anybody uh, is hiring and is interested in security researchers who uh, specialize in breaking clouds, containers, and Kubernetes, um, 
my email address is easy to find. And um, I think that's coming next for me for work. Besides that, I think I'm going back to my lovely house in Minneapolis to pet my cute little fuzzy kittens. And, uh, and then probably I'm going to break some more things. I have some more exciting things coming down the pike, but I can't spoil them quite yet. So stay tuned. Where, where can people find you, by the way? Um, I am on GitHub and Twitter as Ian Coldwater. Honestly, I'm pretty much everywhere as Ian Coldwater. So if you if you look my first name, last name up, um, you can find me there. Lovely. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much. Appreciate you.